security is not a game of non-participation. And let, let me let that sink in. It, it's the linchpin that can undo a company. Hello, That Tech Showers. Welcome to the show. And uh, Sam's laughing at me already. What? What? I thought you had messed it up already. I hadn't messed it up already. I was going to say, welcome. Thank you for joining us, listener. This is That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is new technology. Did I get that right? Good. Yeah, everyday technology. But Oh, well, you know, I was just being, you know, a little bit uh, stylish with it. I was styling it out. <laughs> anyway, thank you, listener. Thank you for joining us yet again. We really appreciate you tuning in for yet another episode of That Tech Show. And uh, I think we're going to keep it a little bit brief today. So uh, who have we got on the show today, Sam? Well, today we're joined by Dmitry Irapitov. Twice, would you believe? This is a really insightful uh, conversation about cybersecurity. We learn about how hackers exploit a system and ransomware as a service. There's a lot of actionable stuff in this episode, and Dimitri is going to throw it all at you. So you're going to want to check this out. And we also talk about career progression, which is particularly interesting in this case, as Dimitri was working for Sonic Wall when we spoke to him, and he'd been there for 18 years. However, that was two months ago. So stick around for the end of the episode to hear our follow-up chat that we've literally just had with Dimitri to see what he's up to now. So what you'll hear is our first conversation in full, followed by that neat little follow-up where Dimitri will explain what he didn't know about cybersecurity and what challenges he's facing now in the world of Auth. So as this is two episodes, two shows in one, you, you lucky little devils, well, let's just get right into it. Here is Dimitri. Hey guys, uh, my name is Dimitri Rapidov. I'm the VP of Platform Architecture here at SonicWall. We are a cybersecurity provider based out of Bay Area, California, uh, or sunny California here, even though we do have offices globally uh, in Asia, Europe, Middle East, Latin America. I've been with the company for, for 16 and a half years now in engineering, product management, uh, various other roles. But yeah, we provide cybersecurity solutions, whether network, endpoint, cloud, remote access for, for SMBs, mid-sized markets, enterprises, governments. And yeah, it's been a ride. <laughs> it's been a ride for 15 years now. Nice. You've, you've been a part of it for 15 years? Yeah, I joined actually through an acquisition of a small startup back in 2005 when I was one of the engineers in a nine-person startup. Yeah, and uh, we got acquired. It was secure remote access. Uh, you know, when people work from home, I think that's a concept that should be familiar to everyone for the past two years. Uh, <laughs> you know, you connect to resources. Of course, the world was very different back then. Uh, today, we have cloud, SaaS services, you know, people connecting to things directly in the cloud. Back then... All the you know all the eggs were in one basket, which was the data center or the corporate network, right? And you needed to connect from various devices to that corporate network. So, I mean that that's technology obviously still exists. It's still used. Uh, it's just evolved. And did you have? I mean, this is I'm just spitballing now. So did you have shares in in the company in the startup you were working with? 
Oh, I did. I did. But there, there's no Lambo parked in my front yard because uh, there, there are some acquisitions and then there are some a- acquisitions of assets. <laughs> you know, when a comp- when a nine-person company goes from 20 customers to 40 customers and you buy the $10 pizza and then from 40, you go down to 30 and back down to 20 and everybody asks for the pizza back. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, don't worry. My shares were in uh, single-digit dollar uh, value by the end. So <laughs> so no Lambo, but a good no Lambo for me. Only toy little Hot Wheels. Uh... <laughs> Hot Wheels. Okay, well it's, yeah. it's the thought that counts, I suppose, isn't it? Aspirational. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. I've got a little. Uh, I've got a little uh, like toy car on my desk. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I suppose that's aspirational in a way. Uh, you, you know, uh, all I could afford was this. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I hate to point it out, but mine's bigger than yours. I know, I know. <laughs> um, but it was a great experience. You know, I mean, uh, going through that experience, it actually really, working in a startup really teaches you what hands-on means. I mean, I was a software engineer, but I also did tech support. I also did manufacturing because, and, you know, manufacturing initially started out literally by copying, doing DD on a disk by connecting those IDE cables to the motherboard and doing DD from the master image. And then we realized that that's not scalable and then setting up a pixie boot and you know environment where the machines just boot up and find an image on the network and image themselves and then reboot into a full working system. So you do that between fixing bugs and writing new code. It, again, it really teaches you what hands-on means, you know, working in a, in a startup like that. When you're doing manufacturing, are you actually like, what, what are you actually manufacturing? Physical things? You know, what I, what I mean is like, imagine you get boxes from an, uh, like you get computers, pre-built boxes, for, uh, appliances from a manufacturer already. Like today you would do Dell, back then we used, you know, somebody else. But how do you get the image of your appliance, of your code onto that? So initially, literally screwdriver, open it up, take out the hard drive, connect it to a master machine with an IDE cable, DD, the disk take out the disc back, put it into the appliance, close it up, and it's manufactured. And that's that's what I mean. Like, that wasn't scalable. So we asked them out of the factory, we asked them to ship them to us where the first boot option was a Pixie boot, you know, over the network boot where there are, like, all these DHCP options that you can do. And then we set up a golden image on a Norton Ghost, I think that was the name of the product. And then it would the machines would boot up, 10 of them, connected to a switch. They would find the golden image on the network, suck it down, write it on disk with a bootstrap loader, all that other stuff. And then they would go through a few reboot cycles and you suddenly have 10 machines ready for shipment. Wow. So that's like really deep into uh, into like actually getting your product out of the door. And then like... that, That's exactly what I mean. Like, uh, And again, it's a very valuable experience because I appreciate it. At that time, I resented it, to be honest. But in the <laughs> retrospect, I appreciate it because, again, it teaches you, like, from A to Z, like, <laughs> what it takes to, like, get it done. Get it done is the motto. So at the, t- at the time, you're thinking, what? Well, here's another bloody thing I've got to get done to done today to get out of the door. I'm a software engineer. I write code. I come down from the mountain and I hand the code down to you mortals. <laughs> like, why am I dealing with this? <laughs> yeah, now why have I got to get a screwdriver out? It's ridiculous. I know. <laughs> but anyway. So have you have you managed to keep your hand in a, a little bit as you've gone as you've gone on this progression to, to VP? Or are you, you off the keyboard now? Uh you know, it, it depends on who you ask, uh, because, well, so I came in and I was a software engineer for a while. Then I moved into product management. And, you know, at the time, I actually didn't know what product management was. And I would 
venture to say that a lot of, you know, the, if you want to insult a product manager, ask them, oh, you, you do project management, right? Or how's that different, right? It's like, uh, that's what triggers product managers. But I didn't know what product managers do. And I was looking for a way to expand from engineering. And, uh, you know, literally my, I was, you know, early mid twenties and my mentality was I write code and thou shalt, in, you know, enjoy the code that I write and, <laughs> and give you and who everyone else in the company provides no value because value is in the code. And I wanted to learn a little bit more about what how companies operate. So I moved to product management and I've learned now how organizations, you know, every function in a company has a function, critical function, right? I learned what marketing does. I learned what product management does. I learned what engineering does, really does, not just write code, right? They solve problems. Product managers find the problems, you know? I learned what uh, sales really do. They don't just go out and party and have dinner and, you know, drink wine. They, <laughs> they don't? I, I actually, they don't. <laughs> I, I've, I've done a lot of ride-alongs and no, they don't. It's actually a very tough job. I, I've really gained appreciation. But I think keeping your hands on the keyboard in a way is still very important to stay grounded to reality. I don't code anymore. I, I, I dabble in courses here and there. I don't code anymore, but you know, I build my own computers. I run my own home server. I like tech. You, you got to stay connected somehow. Otherwise, you get lost in the clouds. Literally and metaphorically, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> the um, so have you have you probably spent more time in your career now doing product and other business related things than development? That's true. Yeah, that that's accurate. And the you know this is where you also learn and you start seeing these expressions like product led or customer led to many engineers, to many techies. These are just empty, empty words. And and I'm saying that only because I was one of those people who was like, blah, blah, blah. Those are uh, nice things to say, but I've truly come to appreciate what that means. And what that, it really is like, there's a concept of, you know, there's R and D, which is, you know, you, you are, the R part is engineers, finding new solutions and new uh, cool new stuff. And then the challenge for the business is how do you monetize that? The D part of R&D development is not coding for the sake of coding. It's actually solving business problems. And you know, this is how I, you know, we're a little bit off topic here, but I think this might be valuable to the audience. Like this is how I've uh, come to see people who in, in, in tech or engineering or just tech roles, those who become enlightened leaders versus those who don't. Those who become enlightened leaders are the ones that recognize that what they do is solving business problems or problems identified for the customers. Those that don't cross that line are the ones that still think that they code or that they do tech for the sake of tech itself. And, you know, and that's where that separation between company, you know, uh, that separation starts happening is do you actually identify problems that people really have and then solve those problems in the most efficient way by using technology? Or do you do technology for technology's sake and then try to fit, you know, square pegs into round holes, uh, basically, because you, that well, a square peg was what you built when the customers are really asking for round holes, you know, if, if, if that makes sense. I couldn't agree more, to be honest. It's uh, it, and I don't think there's like a right or wrong or or a better or worse. You know, I think that it's just it's just some people are built to just code and and do that. Yeah, and they find peace in that, and, and that's totally fine. But I think that my recommend, you know, if there are people listening who are at that, you know, asking their coders or again, it's not only necessary coders, but people, it could be in IT doing you know techie stuff, and 
you ask yourself, am I doing things to solve business problems? And by the way, I fully recognize that they might be listening to this and throwing up a little bit in their mouth because it sounds <laughs> like business speak. Hey, I was there. <laughs> I was there, right? But at the end of the day, if you say, I want to be a tech person forever and I just want to geek out on my stuff, embrace it embrace it right but then like you know channel that in productive ways but don't if you want to actually in my opinion this is just my opinion if you want to grow in the organization beyond the individual contributor uh you need to start recognizing that the organization is there to solve certain problems if you're a public enterprise and you're solving you know whatever school etc there you're solving societal problems if you're a private enterprise you're there for profit right so then what are the business challenges and if you're the more you align yourself with that and ask yourself what i'm doing right now is that helping the organization solve the problems the more you embrace that the more you will become accepted and grown and you know nurtured by the organization I feel like we just went into uh, business, in, into personal development and coaching. <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Let's go with it. You know, this was supposed to be a cybersecurity podcast. Am I on the right call? <laughs> <laughs> hey, career development's there, you know. But it's interesting because a lot, you know, a lot of assumptions are, and I completely agree with you. By the way, I, um, I, you know, I, I have my own company now. But when I was working for, you know, agencies and all the rest of it, I've never worked for a startup, but. I wish I understood more about what the company I was working for, what they were trying to do, what they were offering their their customers. And at the same time, when I was on client side, what that business was supposed to do, because I really think that can help you. It can help you focus in the right areas. But what a lot of people uh, assume is you didn't say the word management, how to how to, you know, rise the ranks in in an organization often people gravitate to this idea of management and people management and stuff like that whereas you articulate it so well and i think it's really true it's actually just just that understanding that you're, that you're there to solve you can still code but as long as you're doing it and and really recognizing that you're there to solve business uh, challenges i think that really is the way to um to rise the ranks and for some people by the way it's no, they don't. I know some people. I have some personal friends, and I have utmost respect for them. And, and my respect even rose for them for the decision that they made at some point to leave the management track because everybody thinks that to rise in the company, I need to be a manager. And then some people just hate, hate, hate pe doing people management, but they feel pressured into doing that because that's what career progression, quote unquote, is supposed to be. And you know, I have some friends who literally, like, explicitly left that track and said, "No, you know what? I want to be an individual contributor." And that's what I'm best at. That's what I'm happy at. And the more, and the fact that they embrace that explicitly actually makes them more accepted by the organization because then they're like, you know what, this is what I want to do, and this is where I'm going to excel at, right? And then there's the organization says thank you because actually we could already see the writing on the wall that you're not a good people manager because your heart's not in it, right? And that's some, I think that's the type of self reflection that one should take at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the route I've taken as well recently is to be more of an individual contributor and less of a manager of things, but just because it was uh, getting me down a little bit. But I think it's interesting you mentioned because the um, that thing as an engineer, when you're in the code and you're coding, your desire is generally to make sure that you're developing the best possible thing. And you don't necessarily want to cut corners to deliver functionality but you feel like sometimes you have to, to respond to product need, market fit, all of those sort of things. You know, you might want to go, well, this is a problem here. And you go, you've been told you've got to work around it. 
so it's a different mindset i think when you're actually doing the engineering and from having gone from doing the uh, the organizational planning delivery type thing and product type thing into engineering i'm seeing it from the other side now as well and i think it, it can be a bit uh, a bit of a, a balancing act the, the most salient example that I can give that, uh, you know, the more technical, the, the, those who are in the trenches or coding might resonate with is I remember there would be a feature request at this checkbox. And I'm like, why should I waste my time adding this stupid checkbox and all that stuff when I'm solving hard problems with a capital H, capital, capital P, <laughs> you know, but it's that checkbox that actually makes the customer's life much easier because they have to spend 30 minutes a day work clicking around and trying to do something because they don't have that checkbox and they're starting to hate your product, you know, and, and, and the, the engineer in the trenches who's coding doesn't see that value that like they're causing active pain for the users of the system. Well, it, it's interesting though, because my response to that is to, is to basically go that checkbox that you're being asked for, I'm going to write something that means that I don't have to touch the checkbox again, and you can add as many checkboxes as you want in the future. But that's not people want. There's the co- there's a concept of paradox of choice. The more choices you give, uh, you know, the the more cognitive load you incur on your users, and the more they dislike using your product because you're making them think. <laughs> you know. So anyway, on that topic, let's let's pivot it back to cybersecurity, shall we? So um, your Sonic Wall 2022 cyber threat report has just come out. How do people make sure that they're not cutting corners and targeting the right things as a result of what you've published in that report then? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, let's begin. You know, the, the, the cyber threat report, just so that, uh, you know, it's, it's a collection of data that we collect. So again, we're a cybersecurity company. We have stuff on networks. We have stuff on endpoints. We have stuff in email security, in the cloud. We monitor all this against ransomware attacks. And at the end of the year, we put out, what do we see? What what trends have we seen? So what you're when you're looking at the threat report, that's what it really means. But I think what's more interesting, at least, you know, the threat report is a conversation piece to deeper topics, right? And you're asking, like, how do you, you know, what's there and what can we extract? I will tell you, and I will tell you this as a vendor that does uh, representing a vendor that doesn't sell multi-factor authentication. I'll tell you, if you don't have multi-factor authentication turned on, pause this podcast. I'm sorry, guys, pause this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Go turn on multi-factor authentication. But th- there are things, uh, it's ransomware obviously is the is top of mind for everyone. And if you think about why that is, because it's, it's just, that's the most prevalent attack that grabs the headlines because it's the most impactful. And the reason why it continues to grow is because the, it continues to be profitable. And this primarily driven, I mean, it's mostly driven by profit motive, right? And it continues to be highly profitable. And if you think about it, it it's, it's actually kind of brilliant. It's a brilliant business plan. You have to give credit to there because they're going after the most valuable asset, which is data. Like your laptop, your your phone, in the grander scheme of things, it's disposable. I mean, I know it'll be an inconvenience to lose your laptop, right? But you can replace it. It'll be, it'll be an inconvenience. The most valuable thing that you have is the data that you have. And ransomware started out with by targeting individuals like, oh, no, your photos are now encrypted. And, you know, back in the simple old days, like, please give us half a Bitcoin, which is $300, right, to get your, your family photos back. And 
they've grown up since then to running a business. And it's actually fun, interesting to monitor their trend of growth, like where there's like ransomware as a service now. It's like affiliate effectively, like <laughs> oh my God. it's like the channel, the channel or your franchise. Like you don't have to write your own ransomware. You can just join my program and you'll get a 80% cut from any ransom that, and I'll get 20%, right? And they've grown to techniques now like over the last 24 months. And this is really scary, actually. Over the last 24 months, we started seeing ransomware groups have become really sophisticated in that they monitor for vulnerabilities that are coming out in the industry. And every, there are vulnerabilities in everything all the time, right? It's just like every time people patch, by the way, PSA number two, besides multi-factor authentication, patch everything. Uh, but they monitor vulnerabilities and they know that people don't patch and they immediately get proof of concepts, especially for vulnerabilities that have proof of concept available. And they just start, start scanning the internet. They get inside the network. They exfiltrate the data for double extortion. So double extortion means I am a ransomware operator. I encrypt your data, but I also have a copy of your data. And now I'm also going to threaten to leak your data. You guys are in Europe. I'm going to trigger, you know, GDPR, or you know, it might be health compliance or school, you know, whatever regulatory regime that the company is operating under. I'm going to start. I'm going to threaten to trigger that on top of the pain of you being down. There is a concept of triple extortion where I'm also going to dig through that confidential data that I stole from you that I've also encrypted, and I'm going to see what contracts and NDA contracts you have. And I might go to the third parties with whom the other parties, third parties to our ransomware relationship. I might go to those parties and I'll start extorting them maybe, or maybe building business email compromise type uh, attacks. So it's it's really, really grown. And this is where now we're talking in, you know, hundreds of thousands. I think there is a company called Coveware that does a lot of these, you know, ransomware negotiations. And they put out statistics that it's like the average ransom has grown to like $200,000 last year. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's, you have to respect the business model, but it's, uh, it, it, it's quite impactful right so now. Where are you finding this ransomware as a service then? Is that like a, readily available on the internet or do you have to be on uh, the, uh, the dark web? Connect to that? the dark web, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I'm not going to give pointers on the, <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> uh, Dimitri Ransomware dot onion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but if you look it up, right, if you just search, uh, you can find these ransomware. I, I, I suggest not dabbling in it. But Well, I, I personally, I've never been able to actually find find anything nefarious on the dark web because I actually don't know where to look. I don't know how people learn about that. There are some forums where you start, right? And then uh, Telegram channels, uh, subreddits, IRC channels. And then it, it's one of those things where you, once you learn, uh, you, there you can join discussions of where else to go, things like that. But presumably you and, your, you and yours, I suppose, uh, have to be involved in those sort of things and have to know about them to be able to see the threats that are coming, presumably. We do something different. Uh, so there are companies, there are companies that go in and they monitor and they have people monitoring this. I dabble in it personally. That's just for personal interest. I have the you know privilege of being a native Russian speaker. So I can, uh, a lot of the stuff is in Russian. Uh, so <laughs> I can read a lot of that stuff, but that's not our main. SonicWall's main business is protecting against those threats. And what we do is, so when we cover, again, we have we have millions of customers, you know, we have a lot of people using our stuff. And think of it as a 
kind of a positive reinforcement feedback loop. Uh, so Chris, you might be our email security customer, for example, and Samuel, you might be our network security customer. And you know, Chris, you'll click, a, you, you got an attachment that happened to be a PDF that leads to ransomware. That lands in our threat research network. We will analyze, and we have machine learning uh, to automate the analysis. Things that are really, really interesting go to the, manu to the threat researchers that reverse it manually using a variety of reversing tools. Um, and then they write signatures or they write protections that then go out to all of our products. So Samuel, you might've had like, you might have a, a firewall for example from us and you never saw that attack that Chris received, but like two hours later, you already have protection against it because Chris may have gotten it, right? So it's, and then you might be clicking on a whole bunch of weird links that hit drive-by download websites, you know, or things like that. And we capture that, we get that. And I said the word keyword capture, I'll get to that in a second. We see that and we analyze it. And then we automatically put that protection for Chris's email security system or somebody else's endpoint security system. And you know, I, I do want to take the moment here to also explain, you know, a lot of the listeners know the concept of network security, but I've come across a lot of people who actually don't know what's happened in the firewall world even in the last 15 years. And it's, I think, important to visualize just what happens at gateways at like, or what happens in these security tools. So like, you know, firewalls are old. Checkpoint invented them in 1995 or something like that, right? But think of the traditional ones. It's like, imagine you're going in a security line in an airport. Right and traditional firewalls, traditional security tools, what they'd be primarily concerned with is, like you're going to the airport, you have your passport, you have your boarding pass, and you have 30 bags with you, okay? The packet headers effectively and you know and and payload, right? You have 30 bags with you, and the only things that the traditional firewalls, for example, would care about is that the name on the boarding pass matches the matches the passport. What's in your 30 bags? Not interested. I, I'm just basically looking that you're allowed to go in, right? And then we got into things like intrusion prevention, UTM, you know, next generation firewalls, where they said, okay, we're going to also look inside of your bags now. So we're going to not only look at your boarding pass and passport, which is like header inspection and ACLs and, you know, access control list, but we're also going to look inside your bags. This is like the, the full body scanner now. Uh, almost. Hold on. Almost. Hold on. Oh, I'm getting ahead. I'm getting yeah, ahead. yeah. And uh, but we're now going. We're looking through your bags. So this is the deep packet inspection, right? We're looking inside of the actual payload of the packet. So a traditional firewall, you, I, you can click on a link with a virus. It's all totally legit traffic because you initiated, you know, the request, the response, all that stuff works. You can download a traditional firewall. Will never stop it because it's all legitimate traffic. And next generation firewall will be like, ah, oh, let's actually look inside of what's that HTTP response that's zipped, that's base64 decoded, whatever, right? And it looks through, and you start looking through the bags, and you look for guns, knives in the airport example. And then there's the next layer, which is like, you know, this is where sandboxing things or ATP, you know, came in, where we now are looking through all the bags. ATP. Yeah, advanced threat protection. Cool. Like sandbox, uh, so and so what that does is like we're already looking through all your bags, and we know we know what knives look like, we know what guns look like. But then you know I come, I don't have a prop on my desk to show you guys, right? But then yeah, I come across a sphere, black sphere with a big button on it, big red button on it. I'm like standing in the airport concourse. I'm like, what is this thing, right? And I don't want to push the red button with all the people around, but it's suspicious. So we now take it into a safe room. And we have a robot push the button, and then we watch for a flash of light or biological agents or whatever. And that's the whole concept of sandboxing or ATP, right? Where there's stuff, there's traffic that's flowing, and there are some files that we 
know that are bad because when we can just block them and cut them off right away. But there is some stuff that's like, I have no idea what this is, but it's suspicious. So we're going to put it into a safe environment, into a sandbox. We're going to execute it and we're going to see what it does. And then we're going to watch its behavior and then classify its behavior. And then based on that classification, we're going to make a determination in real time of whether it's good or bad. Right. So if it was a, if it was just a pop-up toy, we'll say like, okay, that looks suspicious, but it's actually benign. If it exploded or released a chemical agent, then we'll know, you know, in the airport example, if, if it was actually ransomware in the code example, we know it was bad and we're going to block it. You know, th that's something that came on, came on the scene, like, you know, about 10, eight, seven years ago, broadly. And then there's an additional layer of like, okay, well, most traffic is now SSL encrypted, right? Mo everything is uh, encrypted on it. So like, how do you analyze that? So now you also have to SSL decrypt and look inside of SSL decrypted traffic. So this is where what happened basically over the last 15 years in the firewalling space. And then the in that ATP sandboxing angle, and this is just a broad, like I'm, I'm doing a broad, like, like security 101 on the malware. If I'm Dimitri, the malware operator, I'm running a business today. And that's just the way it is today. Like ransom operators, like, you know, there's probably a Dimitri somewhere that's run, you know, that, that, that's, <laughs> running, that, that, that's decided to try his hand in, in ransomware, right? And, but the point is like, I know that if I launch my campaign and my sample gets caught on day one, I know that the cybersecurity industry shares the samples and my campaign and all the cybersecurity tools will be able to detect my ransomware and just not kill it right away, right? So my campaign will be dead. I won't make any money. So where I invest my time is I invest my time on evasion and I try to be evasive. I try to detect, am I in that sandbox environment? Maybe I uh, obfuscate my code. Maybe I pack it. Maybe I encrypt it more. Or if I, I detect a debugger looking at me, right? I I stop doing anything bad so I don't get detected by these systems. So evasion has kind of become the name of the game there. Yeah, that, that's where the, the cat and mouse conversation right now isn't that evasive malware. Is it getting harder to um, fight back against these? Or, you know, because everything seems to be getting more and more elaborate, I guess. Oh, that's a really good observation, actually. Um, I don't know if it's hard. I, I can't tell if it's harder or not. It's definitely where the battle is happening is shifting you know, it shifts, like, you know, wh where the new front, I get, not where the balance, where the new front is shifts all the time. Like, for example, we had the solar winds example two, uh, one and a half years ago, right? And the solar winds was compromised by the, you know, it's, I don't know if it was confirmed, not confirmed, but everybody, everybody pretty much knows it was, you know, a, a Russian uh, state-sponsored basically attack on solar winds, and then solar winds was crown jewels to all the IT environment. And, you know, it's a supply chain attack. And all of a sudden, you know, supply chain attacks are interesting, right? And you got, go down to the point where attacks are happening at the code level, where there are coders who pull libraries from Git or pull libraries from the internet as part of their compilation process. And you know what, if I poison, and, and by the way, that's my number one fear. If I get ransomware at home, it's going to be through one of the 20 utilities that I'm running and one of those utilities getting an update. That's poison. I actually had that kind of happen to me in 2009 in a, uh, that, I, that I caught. 
I'm not, I don't want to name the utility. It was one of the editors, but that's how I'm going to get ransomware if I ever get it. It's through a, through a software update that's compromised through. But we see that we've seen the cases happen with Microsoft. We've seen cases happen with large companies where they're building some products and they're pulling some open source library and that library itself has been poisoned. So that poisoned code now gets a ride along, along a trusted chain, right? But that's not new. That's an old tactic. It just became popular again, you know, because the... Uh, and then they're copycats or, or maybe just security researchers now actually paying attention to that space. You know, we had side channel attacks. Uh, we had, you know, ransomware just continues because just because it's profitable. Now we've, we're back to vulnerability exploitation, mass vulnerability exploitation. And then uh, people are going to remember that they have IPS systems and that they have patch management systems, right, to mitigate that. So it's the, the, where the, the front in cybersecurity shifts. And I'm, and I'm, by the way, to broader audience, you know, all of my examples right now kind of at the network IT level. I mean, I'm not even touching the cloud SaaS, you know, type examples yet. That, that's that's where predominantly, you know, there's like stolen credential, credential reuse, password reuse, lack of two-factor authentication. You know, th- those things matter uh, there. Well, that, that, that sort of stuff, you know, the lack of two-factor things, it feels like it's that's that's the basic way in right now, isn't it? Because you're, you're you know, we've got much more capability to perform computations essentially which would mean that password cracking has got to be a lot simpler hence the need for two-factor so it feels like not having that is a massive weak point right now massive and and you know what's shocking microsoft just put out a report their version of a threat report about two weeks ago i I forgot what, what it's called i can pull up the name for you and they stated that I think like 27%, only 27% of their active Azure Active Directory users have multi-factor authentication enabled. That's criminal to me. Like any any organization that's doing that, like I, I would put the IT manager in that organization on a performance improvement plan, <laughs> you know, basically. <laughs> I mean, not enabling that that is already in the product itself is criminal in my opinion. Didn't um I mean has it already happened? But didn't Gmail threaten to just turn on two factor for everyone as a default? Wasn't that a threat? That well, a threat. I remember know? seeing a headline. Yeah, I mean that's where consumer. I mean I can imagine you know some people not knowing. I mean I I think all consumers should have two factor. I have two factor authentication enabled in my Gmail because you know what you steal my Gmail you steal my life. Effective. You can reset every password, every password, and all all my banking and all that stuff. You steal my Gmail. You steal my life. So I have it uh, locked down, which actually is a single point of failure at this point in my digital world, right? Uh, but they probably pulled back because a lot of people would not know how to do it yet. But at the IT corporate level, Azure Active Directory unacceptable. And you're absolutely right, Chris. Like having two-factor authentication would thwart a lot of those attacks. You have all of those data leaks. At this point, I assume that majority of my easy-to-create passwords are already out there. You know, just uh, I assume all your listeners know about a website called Have I Been Pwned? Oh, yes, we have. Uh, we, we had an episode on that, I think, didn't we, Sam? <laughs> you couldn't say it, Chris. You couldn't I couldn't say, say it. it. I didn't know what it was supposed to be, <laughs> but uh, I don't know how to pronounce you, it. You know, the etymology of that is from computer games. That's um, what I said to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was from, it was like, oh, and somebody misspelled it. But anyway, um, but yeah, like you type it in, like I just any password that I created prior to me starting to use a password manager, I just assume is out there already. Right, uh, either already cracked or not cracked, and people reuse the same passwords, and th- that's the way in. And the, this is where you get the RDP uh, uh, passwords, credential stuffing attacks. Um, I mean, it's 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 bad. But even uh, forget 
the consumer side, even on the IT corporate side, right? If I, Chris, I successfully infiltrate your computer, I get, I get a virus installed in your computer and I see that you're logging into some organization, I steal your credentials. What's going to stop me, Dimitri, the attacker from getting into your organization with those credentials is two-factor authentication. And especially for companies that use SaaS, in a cloud native company, your username and password is effectively the firewall. If I have your username and password and you don't have two-factor authentication, I don't need to break anything else. I can just start logging into whatever you use, Salesforce, Zendesk, whatever it is, whatever cloud services you use, I'm in. And it's only two-factor authentication and maybe adaptive authorization and some other things that can prevent that happening. You're starting to get alerts in the middle of the night that you're logging in and you know that something's up. Do you have a particular uh, sort of preference for the type of two-factor auth? Because the, the Google Authenticator app seems to be everything that I'm using at the moment is on the Google Authenticator app rather than like the text messages and things. Yeah, don't use text messages. Those are highly insecure with the SIM swapping attacks. I'm not an expert on MFA apps. I mean, I use Google Authenticator and Microsoft Authenticator, but I think that just might be a matter of choice of my IT department, right? I That has no reflection whatsoever on technical capabilities of the product. That's just what I use. But it's how it's advanced, isn't it, from having like those RSA keys that we used to get years ago. Um, you can still get, like, Google have that key. I was tempted to get it, actually. They have, like, a USB-C kind of key. Yubi, Yubi key. Yeah, 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 right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got one. Uh, I've got I've got four. Yeah, yeah. The, those are hard, the hardware tokens, and that's even harder. So, like, even SMS attacks, uh, they are susceptible to. SMS is actually, please don't use SMS. It's uh, because you can search for SIM swapping attacks, and it's something where, and again, as long, as soon as it becomes profitable, It'll be like copycats and more and more cyber gangs will go into that space. But you use that. And now the thing is, let me just stop pontificating and come back a little bit to reality, right? <laughs> There's some tools that have MFA built. A lot of people might be listening and saying like, okay, okay, I'll do it. And then they go look for the checkbox and some, some things will have MFA built in. Use it, please. You must. There are some things like legacy systems or just whatever other systems that don't have it built in. And that's where... Um, You'll also hear the term in the cybersecurity industry called zero trust networking. I want to be crystal clear. It's not a product. It's a methodology. Anybody who tries to tell it to you that they're selling to you a zero trust product is BSing. It's a way of life, not a way of, it's like healthy living, right? Like I can't sell you healthy living. It's, it's something that you do. But there are tools and this is where those security remote access tools that I you know, used to work in my previous life. But you can start adapting those tools to provide MFA or zero trust networking principles, even inside an organization. The idea is you trust nothing, right? Like just because I'm sitting next to a computer and on the same network doesn't mean I should have access to it. I first have to authenticate to it and see whether or not I actually have rights to it. And am I accessing it from a solid device that's corporate that has AV and is patched? Or am I connecting from a Windows 7 shared public terminal in an internet cafe, you know, you know, somewhere. But you can wrap all that around. You can wrap your critical infrastructure inside the organization. You can start segmenting and you know, deploying the zero trust networking principles uh, even inside with other tools. You don't have to like throw everything out that you have. You can wrap around, you can provide MFA wrappers. How do you go about providing that sort of a wrapper? Let me give a very, very concrete example. So like I'll, I'll give you one from even like my past life where even there, there were still 
customers that had mainframes, AS400s, and they're like, well, we can't, we just have Telnet. We don't have SSH on it, right? You put one of those secure mobile access, secure SSL VPN devices in front. The only way to authenticate, the only way to get to that uh, legacy application or that mainframe or whatever it is, is to first authenticate with this modern device. And this modern device will do all of the adaptive authorization, multi-factor authentication. And then not only will it, it won't give you network level access. It'll give you pinpoint, you can give people pinpoint access just to this particular protocol. Let's say it's SSH or RDP, right? Just for this particular session. So if you have malware on your computer that starts scanning all new networks as soon as they come up and scanning for vulnerabilities, it won't even see that there is a new network accessible because there is, you know, it's only one application over one port. It's kind of per app VPN accessible. And then when you're done with your session, it's all torn down and you don't have access to it again. And by the way, next time you access it, let's say that your boss revoked some permissions you know, from you for some reason, right? You're, you're in a different department. You shouldn't access it anymore. You try to access it, you'll be denied, right? And versus on a traditional kind of network where everything is accessible, you can still keep logging in because your credentials authenticate with your Active Directory or your LDAP. So anyway, that's just one of the concrete examples. Because it's a hard problem that people have. You know, you mentioned with the Azure stuff, I can almost guarantee that the reason why you'd probably have 20% of people actually using encryption is because they have legacy stuff that they've just stuck in the crowd, in the cloud and they don't have that wrapper. So it feels like that would be an obvious reason why they haven't got that. And, and a lot of the SSL VPN, uh, what used to be SSL VPN products effectively, uh, whatever they're branded today, like ours, our branding is secure mobile access. But the point is a lot of these tools are now used also for internal. Um, you will see there is a new uh, entire new category now emerging uh, led by Gartner. Gartner is the one that coined the term SASE. And I'm not trying to be sassy here, but, but it's <laughs> secure access service edge. And if you think about it, it's the same principle, but taken to the cloud where, you know, people don't want to deploy appliances or VMs or anything else anymore. They just want to create it as a cloud service. And the idea here now is, you know what, we're just going to have our, like, Dimitri sitting on his machine at home just connect to a SaaS, to the service from SonicWall, from whoever else, right? There are many other vendors. And from there, I just connect with a single client, kind of like consumer VPN client. You, you, we all know like things like the consumer VPN clients. And then from there, I have access to my cloud resources based on my policy, to my on-prem resources based on my policy. Uh, I'm going to stop there because SASE is a whole another hour conversation. <laughs> and uh, I'll be glad to come on <laughs> at a later time. Uh, but I want to kind of dial it back to, you know, like threats and your question of, you know, threat prevention. Yeah, there are multiple fronts. I want to re-emphasize re multi-factor authentication, even for internal users on the inside. Patching is critical. And if you can't patch, I know sometimes it's, you know, it's impossible to patch, for example, an exchange server with it being used by 3,000 people in, on a Thursday afternoon because there's a critical vulnerability. Well, that's where, again, old technology, but it, it's highly valuable, intrusion prevention works because it provides something like virtual patching, right? Where the security companies know exactly what the attack looks like. They can put countermeasures and signatures against that attack. And so if Dimitri, the attacker, is scanning the internet with this proof of concept code, just hammering every single IP address on the internet with it, the intrusion prevention system will block that. So if Dimitri, the attacker, thinks that the system is patched because my attack didn't work. Whereas you have a bigger breathing window 
within which you can actually have a maintenance window and patch on a weekend rather than a Thursday afternoon. Because that's to do with more like the zero day stuff then. Like the exactly. in, initially they're going to come at you. And if you can give yourself a bit of breathing space, you then, you know, you're able to, to survive for another day whilst you patch your vulnerability. That's exactly it. And, and I'll tell you, that's what I was kind of mentioning that the new technique over the past 24 months uh, that really got taken up by ransomware groups is, you know, I'm going to monitor and I'm going to, I'm Dimitri the attacker, right? And I'm, and I have a list of vendors that I'm monitoring, like VMware, Microsoft, Pulse Secure, Fortinet, Palo Alto, SonicWall, uh, VMware, did I mention VMware? Uh, you know, F5, Citrix, right? I, I have a list of vendors that are kind of infrastructure you know, that are used, that are infrastructure. And as soon as I see a vulnerability, especially if I see a CVE with a score of higher than uh, 10, uh, higher than nine, between nine and 10, again, quick CVE 101, CVE is common vulnerability exchange or something, whatever the acronym, but it's a universal marker for vulnerabilities that's used worldwide to identify vulnerabilities. They have a score from zero to 10. Anything between nine and 10 is drop everything right now because it's exploitable from the internet with no user, with no intervention, right? So it's like drop everything, patch it. So I, Dimitri the attacker, I'm monitoring the, the CVE list. And as soon as I see a CVE again, being dropped against, um, you know, I'll pick on VMware, just not randomly picking out the name here, right? I look for proof of concept code. It might come out two weeks later. I don't care because I know people don't patch for years, you know? And I got that proof of concept code and I start hammering the internet. In fact, I can go and show down.io. I assume you guys, maybe your, your, your listeners will probably have heard it. If not, have fun on the showdown safari. What was that URL again? Showdown. Show, showdown.io, S-H-O-D-A-N. Dot io think of it as Show google down. for all yeah google for all internet connected devices you want to find ip cameras you want to find grain silos you want you want to find uh, power plants you want to find every netgear router every sonical firewall every vmware it's right there bloody hell well that's news to me well that's my that's that's my evening uh, taken care of <laughs> so you're you're going to go on a showdown safari where you can literally go on an exploration of unsecured IP cameras, grain silos, power plants, whatever. So if I'm an attacker and let's say for example I know that I have a proof of concept code against a certain VMware version, I now search showdown and there are ways to API search and it's like you can I can get very creative with how I search. And I find every instance, every IP address of the of a VMware Horizon or whatever is exposed, or of Pulse Secure, or SonicWall, Palo Alto, Fortinet, whatever, Netgear, and I take that list, dump it into my scripts, and I start hammering the proof of concept against those IP addresses, and I see what comes up. And then when I'm in, I start pivoting, establishing persistence, exfiltrating data, installing my ransomware, and we're off to the races. Effectively, the techniques that they use today are what, what would have been considered nation state seven or eight years ago. Wow. But let me tie it back to our threat report. A section there is an IoT, Internet of Things. IoT is a broad topic. It's just as broad as cloud. Right, but let's zoom in on it. Everything that you use today is a computer with a special function. A Tesla is a computer on wheels, right? Your toaster is probably a computer that toasts bread, but everything is a computer and everything is a microprocessor. You know, there are fish tank, a favorite example from the last three or four years, a casino in Las Vegas exploited through a thermometer for their fish tank because the thermometer for the fish tank is internet connected and it was not secured and it was on the same flat network as the rest of the casino network. So somebody found it on showdown.io 
<laughs> oh my god! And access it, and then they're in because it's a computer, probably a little Raspberry Pi type device that can run Linux and it can run commands and can become a perfect springboard for further operations. Wow! But coming back to the IoT discussion, uh, part of our finding is vulnerabilities against IoT devices. And if you think about it, like many of us have been working from home recently, and we have, and like a lot of people have. I don't want to name names, routers from just um, off-the-shelf routers at home or for, provided by their ISP. And I like to explain that a lot of those are kind of like sunglasses. Did you know that 99% of sunglasses are made by one company? And they all just have different, uh, they're called Luxottica, and they all just have different brands stamped on them, but they all roll off the same line. And <laughs> it's the same thing. Um, yeah, you'll never pay for an expensive pair of sunglasses again. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to have a very long list of URLs in the uh, in the show notes. Here. Yeah. <laughs> but there are these routers that roll off the same way, right? And they have these massive vulnerabilities. And people don't like how many people patch their router at home. Like, uh, I mean, you might patch your re reboot your computer to update your OS X or Windows. You might reboot your restart your browser. When was the last time you patched your, your router? Those things are full of holes. And part of what's in our threat report actually is we see, we capture that traffic, right? Because when, when that tra somebody is finding those routers on Shodan and hammers them with existing vulnerabilities that have like existed for five or six years now. And when that code hits our devices, we recognize it and we you know capture the telemetry. So if you look in our threat report, you'll actually see the names of the routers being hammered of the of those exploits. Right. And what that means is there are attackers that are trying to exploit the, those home routers. And so far, we've seen botnets used for distributed denial of service attacks being installed. So like if you look at the Mirai botnet, for example, or there are other, like if you just Google router, home router botnet, that's where most of the stuff has been so far. But they're now evolving into replacing, for example, I think I saw an example of replacing crypto wallet addresses, right? If they see that, that's probably a little bit more uh, reaching out there because it requires a lot of computational power on the router. But if I own your router as an attacker, I now am inside your home network. And with people working from home, if you don't have proper policies and segmentation, all that stuff, right? I'm now in your home network and I might be a controller for some company or I might just be an employee. But now this home network is effectively a branch of an enterprise network, you know, or like my home office. And that scares me. I mean, I hate to make this prediction and I hope I'm, I sincerely hope that I'm wrong. But I'm shocked that we have not seen a large headline of an organization being hacked through a home router of a remote working employee. That, to me, that's the, one of the soft underbellies. You know, I hope the threat actors aren't listening to this, but to me, that's one of the soft underbellies right now. And there are ways to mitigate whatever, but it's scary to me. You know, no IT organization in the world should ever consider taking over home network management. That's just not a can of worms you want to open. But how do you know that Dimitri is connecting, not, not Dimitri the attacker, but Dimitri the employee is connecting from a clean machine? And from a, and that's where endpoint enforcement, endpoint security, divide, what I mentioned adaptive authorization earlier, where you check like, is this a corporate owned asset fully patched with AV and whatever? Or is it some random machine with Windows 7 that's unpatched, Service Pack 2, you know, <laughs> like that has, uh, oh my God, I'm not my not Minecraft. But, um, oh my God, what's the survival game? The shooter survival game uh, that's popular 
Fortnite. Fortnite. <laughs> has the Fortnite cheats, you know, installed. I didn't know where you were going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, that's a really interesting point, though, because, like, how would you then say that the best way of managing that home network is? Because is that then, and, and I, I mean kind of half on the consumer point of view and half on the, the company's point of view, like, with most people starting to do work on over programs like Microsoft Teams or using like uh, all of the Google um, workspace suite, you know, is that going to be safer because you're working on cloud related things rather than actually logging into a network? Like it feels to me that ironically, a VPN access might be more vulnerable. You're absolutely right. And kind of naively configured VPN access is going to be more vulnerable. There are ways to do it. And it just, it, it's all a gradient. I'm not going to tell you that there is a silver bullet. It's just a gradient of risk and gradient of, um, let me take you to the one extreme of the gradient. Um, in the beginning of the pandemic, I was talking to uh, one of our technology partners. We, we are a channel-based company, right? So we don't sell directly. We sell through var, value-added resellers or MSSPs, things like that. And I was talking to one of them in Germany. And he was working with an insurance company that overnight had to send 3,000 people to work from home. And they had a problem because they didn't have these, you know, they had to continue operations and they couldn't guarantee on what computer people would be connecting from. What, how they solved it is you don't give people a VPN tunnel. You give them, uh, when they log in, you give them kind of a virtual office. And all it is, is just remember those pinprick application uh, access that I said gave you, but it even goes further where you're not using the native RDP client on your machine. You're using an HTML5 rendered kind of a reverse browser isolation. So imagine I'm logging into, I log into a portal with my credentials and all I see is like my computer or system, uh, system one, system two. When I click on my computer, I just get an HTML5 browser rendered view of my computer. Yeah, this is like uh, the re- what is the remote, like almost like a remote desktop, I suppose, isn't it? It's exactly remote desktop, but it's not the native program on your computer. It's in the browser or SSH in the browser, right? Or even in intranet site rendered in the browser. So what that does is if I'm connecting from, again, I'll keep using, I'll keep beating that dead horse, Windows 7 Service Pack 2 shared computer with every virus imaginable, right? Nothing can get through over that connection because it's just in the browser, it's completely isolated. Now, the credentials that I used might get stolen, but of course you already have two-factor authentication enabled and when they get used again, you know, that alerts everyone. But now at least you're not letting a virus-ridden machine connect into your network. That's one aspect. I mean, the other one is to only allow, like what we do internally, we only allow machines that have the full endpoint suite enabled on it. Right, so this is where we get into conversation of that adaptive authorization. So before you connect, you type in your username and password, you enter your 2FA code. Now you're not granted a connection until we do a health check on your machine. Is this a device with, again, up-to-date AV, up-to-date patches? Is it running any unauthorized applications? I don't know, you might have like, I don't know, BitTorrent client or make up something that you don't like, right? Like we can check and we actually do check, do you have any of that on the machine? And if you do, you can either be denied or you can be put kind of into the quarantine zone. So you have minimal access, but you don't have access to the really secure stuff. So that way, if I grab my, my I don't know, my kid's laptop or my spouse's laptop, right, and try to connect, I actually can't connect because that's not an authorized device. 
or maybe I can, if I do connect, I just, you know, I can only access like two systems to file a ticket for something or to ask for help, but I don't actually have internal access. So it's all about providing a gradient on your risk scale effectively. But coming back to you, that IoT at home, how do you deal at home? I just, you know, I, in a PSA number three, just patch your home routers and <laughs> make sure they're up to date. I mean, they, they do provide updates. Make sure everything is patched. I guess that was PSA number two, wasn't it? Uh, well, we'll have to go back through the episode and list them out in the show notes. Plenty of public service announcements, though, definitely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to scare everybody. Like, I, I, this is not meant to like leave you all. <laughs> all of the conversations we ever have around security are scary, and uh, you know that lead, generally leads to a change in behavior. And I think throughout this uh, these series um salmon at least salmon i am sure for, for the listener at home uh, we're, we're getting progressively more secure <laughs> as we start adopting different things you know i'll tell you security uh it's, it's kind of like that joke of you know two guys are in the woods and they run into a bear and one of them starts tying his shoelaces another one is like what are you doing he's like i just have to outrun you <laughs> you know <laughs> in a way if united states israel uk Russia, North Korea, Iran, or China want to hack you, they're going to hack you. Just, just accept it, okay? Uh, they will get in. Th- there's actually a matrix of attackers. They're like sophisticated, unsophisticated, financially motivated, or uh, destruction-oriented, and then like, uh, I forgot, you want to get rid of the ones that are financially motivated, unsophisticated. Then you want to get rid of the financially motivated, sophisticated. Then the nation state, sophisticated, targeted, though, just you're you're gonna get nailed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, um, I mean, I know I there are, there's probably somebody from NHS or something listening to this. No, there's a way to help and you know uh, re- mitigate this splash damage or attack. And that's where zero trust networking principles help. But for majority of people, just make sure you're not the low hanging fruit, right? That low effort person who just decided to dabble in ransomware or vulnerability scans or whatever, and is running scripts that they don't even understand. Their names are script kitties. Make sure you don't get ensnared by those, right? If there's a vulnerability that came out three months ago and there's a patch available and now you know everybody and their mother has access to the proof of concept code and they can just hit up every IP address with it, don't get ensnared in that. That's the stuff that's frustrating to see. Yeah, Sam, Sam and I actually worked for a company that, uh, that had a very similar sort of really juvenile attack. Do you remember, Sam? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was like a 15 or 14 year old, wasn't it? They can be pretty sophisticated because they go deep on the topic and they geek out on the topic. <laughs> Don't dismiss those 15 year olds. <laughs> Nothing less to do with their time. But yeah, that was interesting. I mean, it gets this on the on the topic of the ransomware, I guess. But um, I was just a couple of a couple of comments. I think the uh, the thing you were talking about about how to get access, you know, remotely as a as an employee from home. That whole rendered remote desktop view scares me a little bit because I remember having to try and use it years and years ago when you know you'd have a lag on a key press and that was for some reason someone thought that that was a good idea to have that as the development environment because uh, obviously they wanted to segregate it from the office environment so the office people end up being first class citizens and the developers you know the ones that are re- reliant on building the products for the company, they get the worst computers, which is always the way, I think. But it scares me a little bit that it could be, you know, how many barriers do you end up having to put in 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 the way? And, you know, if you have an overzealous security manager in a business, do they end up almost stopping the work from happening? Because that sort of goes right back to what we were talking about at the top of the call in terms of, you know, where do you prioritize? You are 100% right. And that loop back to what we started with, uh, you know, Exactly. Access is more important than security for the business. 
right? If, if security gets in the way of access and productivity, security will be circumvented. And that's the existential challenge, you know, for, for all security <laughs> vendors, kind of. The most secure machine is the one that's powered off. You're absolutely right in that concern. Um, and, and that's an extreme scenario, right? That RDP session right, that I gave you, that, that was there. Initially, they issued laptops and they use a native agent with Parap VPN and you can do things like that. But you're absolutely right. There is no right answer, I think, for that. I, I wish I could give an easy answer uh, for this. In, but that's something that everybody, every IT security administrator will have to kind of dabble with and see where their organization, like what's their risk tolerance and what's their pain tolerance, right? But if your users hate you, they will revolt or they will circumvent or you will be out of a job soon. Yeah. And I think the circumvent is a really interesting point because, you know, people will find a way around it even within the own, their own organization. Absolutely. Because- That's the whole concept of shadow IT. Right. It was a big term six, seven years ago, shadow IT. That's the consumerization of IT. How did iPhones displace the BlackBerry in the corporate environment? Convenience. And that was the whole consumerization of IT. All of a sudden, you have these consumer devices coming into the environment that are easier, more pleasant to use, nicer to use. It starts with the executives, and then uh, it rolls downhill. And then before you know it, the whole organization uses it. And the IT departments, I remember those discussions very clearly in 2012, 2013, when that tipping point was uh, you know, being crossed. You absolutely have to be cognizant of, again, yeah, ease of use uh, and not putting up barriers that people will circumvent because they will circumvent. People are smart. They all like to use nice things that are easy, pleasant, and you know they'll put up with some pain, but not too much. So one thing that is in your report, I believe, but is we haven't touched on yet, is crypto jacking. What is crypto jacking? So how far do we want to pull this thread? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's start at the top. <laughs> let's start at the top. So cryptocurrency, right? Uh, mining cryptocurrency is now a commercial endeavor, okay? And you could mine cryptocurrency 10 years ago on your CPU. I mean, obviously, if you did it back then, it wasn't profitable at all back then. But with appreciation of cryptocurrencies over time, it would have been wildly profitable. Today, even to mine cryptocurrency on a small scale, you have to have one of the high-end GPUs to run. And then your electricity has to be cheap enough and there's a tipping point. It's a function of how expensive, like what's the value of cryptocurrency versus your uh, electricity expenditure. But even to come close to that math, you have to have either ASICs or high-end GPUs uh, right now, graphics processor units with gaming cards. So one of the attacks, again, it's very clever. Uh, Attackers follow the money. So what if I could, instead of using my own electricity, and instead of installing viruses that steal people's banking information that I then have to use, and then I might get caught, and I might get arrested, and all that stuff, and that's hard. What if I could install instead a piece of software that on every victim's machine that mined cryptocurrency, but into my account? Now, individually, each machine is going to contribute like 0.00000001 of a Bitcoin per day, which I would never do on my own computer. But if I have 100,000 victims or if I have 200,000 victims and hey, it's not my electricity, you know, if I get half a Bitcoin a day through that, that's, that's money, you know? Why not? And effectively, and like most people won't even notice because it's a kind of a, could be considered a victimless crime. Like, would you notice that your computer is running at 30% higher? You guys would probably notice. 
somebody uh, somebody else might just think that well that's what computers are they're always like slow you know that windows update last time or oh, like you know that's what made it slow so it, in a way again it could be considered a victimless crime of course it's not it's theft of at the end of the day it's a theft of resources but we've seen it and it comes and goes with prices of cryptocurrency and because you know, when, when Bitcoin is $60,000, if I can uh, somehow have 100,000 people mining half a Bitcoin for me per day, I'm making $30,000 a day. When cryptocurrency falls in price, now I'm doing my math. Like, is it worth, what's the risk reward? Like, am I okay with $5,000 or $10,000 a month? Or maybe I can sell access to these machines and make 15,000. It's all, it's a business. I, that's one thing I want to instill into your listeners. Cyber attacks are a business. You know, you have to have empathy, not sympathy, but empathy. You have to understand their mental model. They're businessmen, businesswomen, businessmen, right? They are pro profit oriented and they will seek profit. So cryptocurrency, when cryptocurrency prices are high, crypto jacking becomes popular. I, it's, I can find an exploit. I exploit a website. Everybody who visits that website or, you know, gets my piece of code and they didn't patch their browser and now they're part of my ecosystem, crypto mining for me, or I send out a phishing campaign. I send out an Excel document that looks like it's one, one drive protected. So people or like people enable macros and I name it something like financial planning for 2022 with salary increases. So everybody's going to open it because they're curious. And now, uh, you know, they're running their, my code on their machines. And I'm just sitting there watching my account, my, my Bitcoin wallet or whatever wallet you choose, accumulate money with not my electricity. Um, so we saw those attacks come and wane with crypto prices. But, but is that is that really profitable? I mean, is it? I mean, because I, I, I've heard about this before, but it, it just feels to me like from having run a very small mining server on my on my uh, machine just to see what it was like and how to do it. It feels like it would be so inefficient. You'd have to have hundreds of thousands of people. That's exactly it. But that's exactly it. That, that's the scale at which they operate. You know, 100,000 victims is a very small number on, uh, on the internet scale. How do you detect this then? How, if, you, if, you, you know, if I want to look on, on my computer, how do I detect to see if there's something running that I haven't uh, created? Because there's so many system processes. There's so many things that have ports open and access to the internet through just you know whatever applications you're using. It's a little bit difficult to track. Yeah, most endpoint suites now. I mean, it's it's tracked as a separate category. So most endpoint security suites will detect those processes and will identify them and kill them at this point. It's not a novel attack. There was a little experimental phase where uh, there were JavaScript cryptocurrency miners, but I think I think that kind of went away. There are still some websites. There used to be even some pirate websites that basically instead of paying uh, using ads to finance themselves, they would have you wait for like 30 seconds on a screen while your computer you was used using JavaScript to mine cryptocurrency into the site operator's account. And only then you got to click on the link of what you wanted to download, right? And it's, it's a, again, it all comes down to monetization. So how you would detect, so I wouldn't worry about browser-based attacks because those kind of got clamped down now, but your endpoint security suite will detect that stuff. Generally speaking, if your CPU, if you're on a laptop and your fans are constantly spinning, you have a problem. If you're on a desktop and your CPU utilization is constantly high, even though you're not doing anything, you have a problem, right? And the, the, that's usually your trigger to look into it. I think it's difficult to tell, though, from, uh, you know, what is the problem of an old Mac versus <laughs> <laughs> versus uh, actually being, you know, crypto jacked. 
I, I think primarily, like, I would rely on endpoint security. You don't think it's something you can look at yourself, then? No, I doubt it. Before you wrap up, because we're coming to the end of the show, how do you stop yourself from going over to the dark side? Because we've mentioned Dimitri the hacker on numerous occasions throughout this episode. You know, what, what stops you from, uh, from going after a... Uh, a well-hidden <laughs> malware attack. <laughs> you know, I love reading and studying stories of uh, attacks. And I'll tell you that every single one of them ends in a bad way. <laughs> First of all, I'm, I live in the United States and the hammer of law will come down on me really, really, really hard. So my cost-benefit analysis is just not there at all, right? If I'm in a country with a non-extradiction treaty to uh, United States or any of the Western countries, then maybe it's a different map, such as Russia, for example. But fundamentally, it's just not worth it because in the long term, you're going to get caught. Uh, just last week, there was the arrest of, there was a big cryptocurrency exchange hack in 2016, $4 billion worth of Bitcoin at today's prices. Just last week, a couple that was trying to launder that money was arrested. And it just comes down to the internet never forgets. That's, that's another lesson. Can I say PSA number five? The internet never forgets. I still see the embarrassing posts from me arguing whether MiG-29 or F-16 is a better fighter back in 1994 on Usenet. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> the internet never forgets. Which is a better fighter? <laughs> uh, uh, you can find it on that very embarrassing thread. <laughs> but, uh, but the point is, the internet never forgets. And that means for forensics as well. And so what that means is you might be operating just fine. And then one day you slip up on your OPSEC and you log in with your machine into Facebook account. That's, And then you can draw a very nice digital trace back to all the accounts, all the people, all the crypto wallets, and you get nailed. And the hammer of law will come down really, really hard on you in any country. <laughs> well, that's the thing about crypto as well, because I remember years ago when, when you know it was just a, a, a new embryonic thing and everyone was talking about it being the, the the trade the currency of choice amongst criminals but it's all tracked it is and it is i mean yes and no right if you have four billion dollars to launder that's really hard because you have a really big target on your back right and you can see exactly which wallet that money went into and there's a whole write-up online right now on how they got tracked and the question is i don't think these are the people that even did the hacking i think they're just the mules who were trying to launder it so the rise of ransomware can absolutely be correlated to the rise of cryptocurrency because that's what enabled those anonymous payments. Now, the law enforcement is catching up to that, right? It, it, like the wild, wild west was 2013 to 2017 and 16, right? And even to this day, there are hacks from like the really big ones that caught attention, like this one from 16, that again, can be digitally traced back because the internet doesn't forget. But the anonymity of that is what really enabled the payments because how would i ransom you for half a million dollars today without cryptocurrency what am i going to ask you to send me apple gift cards right you know <laughs> or western union right? it's just but if i ask you to transfer bitcoin and then I, there are things like tumblers that can launder bitcoin uh, cryptocurrencies there are other block can go blockchain to blockchain i mean there are ways to launder it i guess it's becoming more difficult because again in the last three, four, whatever years, the monitoring industry grew up. So now it's it's no longer like completely in the shadows as much. So it's it's absolutely was an enabler. 
it will continue to be the, uh, the enabler, but it'll become more and more and more difficult, right? So it, it's one of those things, like even if you had, I don't know, if you found a billion dollars in cash tomorrow, like how would you spend it? You can't without, I mean, you could in a little bit, but you couldn't exactly go buy a yacht without bringing tax authorities, you know, asking you where'd you get that income from, right? So it's sort of becoming a similar thing. And I noticed that, you know, you're saying that they're all ending badly, but I wonder how many are not solved. I wonder how many are not caught. Because the ones that are caught, that ends badly. They're, they're the ones that make headlines, but the fact that it continues to persist tells you that there's, again, just come back to if it was not a profitable business, it would not exist. Well, thank you for joining us on the show anyway, Dimitri. Have you, um, is there a final PSA that you can leave us with? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, of course, a security guy would tell you this, but please take this to heart. You know, if you're listening to this, security is not a game of non-participation. And let, let me let that sink in. Like, you know, I've talked to, again, countless companies over years who are like, I'm just a little guy who, like, who would care about my little donut shop business or whatever. Like, if you're online, if you, ha- if you operate online, if you take payments online, if you have presence online, if you, you as an individual operate, of course, we all operate online, you are in the cybersecurity game. It, it's the linchpin that can undo a company now, it, especially with digital transformation that's been forced on everyone uh, you know, in the last two years. It's, it's the thing that can undo your company if, you, if not done properly, just because it's what guarantees effectively the integrity of your digital organization today. And it cannot be thought of as an afterthought. It is an integral part of every company now. And again, like just even for the smaller organizations, it is not a game of non-participation. By being online, by kind of participating in the modern world, you are in cybersecurity. So watch yourself, folks. (laughs) (laughs) That's a wrap. Thank you very much for joining us, Dimitri. All right. Thank you for having me. Hope this was educational, not too preachy as many cybersecurity conversations can get. We just come at it with a passion because it's so important. (laughs) No, it's nicely pitched. Nicely pitched. Thanks, Dimitri. That was a great episode. Well, we actually have Dimitri here with us now, who's kindly offered to kind of give us a follow-up because, Dimitri, you've since moved on from your previous venture and into a new one. So how about you give us a bit of an update of kind of, well, let's start with just where, where are you now? Sounds good. Yeah. And thank you for giving me a chance to, uh, for this update. So since the last time we spoke, I've actually made a major move, uh, you know, after almost 18 years at SonicWall, I've moved to a company named Delinea. Now the name itself uh, may not resonate with many uh, people, listeners, because it's a new name. It was a new name that was uh, just created in February of this year, but it's a result of a merger of two companies called, one is named Centrify and the other one, Phycotic. And the primary area here is privileged account management, identity and access management, but we'll get into this. <laughs> okay, so how, how much of a change is this then from what you were doing previously? In some ways, it's the same in that it's still the area of cybersecurity, but in different ways, I'm like a, on a different planet. And I, you know, if you're, I spent 17 or 18 years in network security and, you know, I, it, that that's where I kind of like my career was built. And now I realize, you know, how ignorant I was in how much more stuff there is in cybersecurity besides, you know, the 
ransomware. I mean, ransomware still affects everyone, right? But the the hardcore vulnerabilities, exploitation, botnets, uh, you know, all of that, like the sandboxing, evasion, all the stuff that we talked about, it's all still highly critical. There's almost another plane of existence, you know, that I've discovered. Maybe others know it, and that's fantastic, you know. But we all learn something new every day. Part of the reason why I switched is in my research, and you know, even when. We were talking, I think we brought on MFA and identity and the fact that username and password is the new firewall. I started seeing the concept of identity and identities becoming more and come up more and more frequently, especially with SaaS adoption. And really, your identity is what entitles you to everything. So I wanted to you know, check out this space. It's something that I was vaguely familiar with before. And I had an opportunity. I moved on. And wow, I've learned a lot already just in the last two months. What are, the, what are the three key takeaways? Let's do let's do uh, bullets. <laughs> well, I'll I'll tell you this. I'll tell it to you like a story, sort of. But this has my been my journey of learning it. And you know, everyone knows again at the network level that you want to prevent lateral movement and you want to do segmentation. And what I've kind of and we we talked again about multi-factor authentication. What I've learned is basically how much more there is to locking down identity or eliminating sort of the 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 fertile ground on which the, many of the hackers can operate and i'll take you i'll give you i'll take you through an analogy right like for example how do you manage right now the credentials for your critical uh, so imagine your active directory server or your domain controller right how do you manage those credentials well you probably have them Hopefully, you have them stored in some sort of a vault, like uh, you know, one password, or you know, and there are commercial vaults. Like for example, we have a vault named you know Secret Server. But the idea is you vault away a password, right? So that you don't, you're not just keeping it in an Excel spreadsheet, especially if you're sharing it with several other people. Imagine a team of ten people having to access firewalls, domain controllers, Active Directory, cloud, uh, you know, cloud Azure, AWS, all with shared accounts, right? So the first step is vaulting, vaulting it away. And that's in, a, in an analogy of a hotel, you might have key, keys to the cards that open up every single door, and they're just like in somebody's drawer, right? And whoever needs it can take it. Now you put them into a safe. But here's where my mind was truly blown. What if you completely got rid of what are called standing privileges. So imagine Active Directory or a thousand Linux servers that you have in your either cloud instance or on-prem, right? What if there was a way for you to log in with your normal credentials and get just the right level of access to be able to do what you need to do? Let's say you need to log in to change the network. So instead of, even if you have a vault, even when you get the password from a vault, you're still kind of coming in as God, right? You're coming in as root. Why? Why? And plus, if you mess something up, right, first of all, you you have full access to that system. You can mess things up. Why do you need that? Why do fifteen people in your IT department need that? You know, we almost we in this space we talk about it as the break glass uh, approach. You break the glass, you get the god access, the root access, your full admin access, and you go do something. Plus, there is now no direct accountability, like who logged in. It's a shared credential. It's a shared god credential. Whereas now, uh, and this is on the server side, right? What you can do is Dimitri, with his Dimitri domain credentials, can log into any server, Linux server, and yes, that means that Linux is part of Active Directory infrastructure and all that stuff now. I log in with my credentials and just I'm just given access to what I can do, like change the network. And this is the part that blew my mind. Imagine multi-factor authentication on the sudo command, right? So like 
when you, you you can basically say Dimitri, when he logs in with his own credentials, he's allowed to you know run these 20 types of commands because he's a network admin. He can change the network. And if he tries to do something else that might be within the or if he's in a risky like he's doing, you know, the impossible travel, all of a sudden he's doing it from China. Right. We can force multi-factor authentication even on the at the command level. Right. Imagine an MFA prompt coming up in Linux in the terminal, right, with your credentials, and you can use, right, and so then how how are you how are you doing that though? I mean, is that like is that kernel programming or is it? I mean, what's what's the idea? That's part of. There are agents that you install agents on every single Linux and Windows server, right? And then the access. And by the way, you remove admin rights, you admin users, any local users, you remove all of that from every system. There is no, effectively, there is no local root. Right. Or there is no local admin. Admin is granted. This is what we call just in time. I log in with my credentials. There is a direct log entry that Dimitri logged in and Dimitri is granted just the rights that he needs to and with MFA. But that's just one aspect. Right. There is a whole other thing here where you now also provide like what, what's the first thing that attackers do when they land? Right. They harvest credentials and they start moving sideways. Well, there's this same technique allows you to inject multi-factor authentication at logon and eliminate all admin accounts off of local machines, right? So you remove all that. You eliminate the fertile ground off of which hackers can move, live. And in terms of lateral movement, I used to focus in my previous life, I used to focus at the network level. But if I steal your credentials, and let's say that you have an admin, so like an admin was logged into the system and I dump their hashes and I crack them offline and I have admin credentials now, I can go anywhere in the network because there, if there is no MFA at, like at a server level, right, internally, we, uh, we know about multi-factor authentication at VPN systems or, you know, cloud systems, but just logging into a server, into a Windows server or into a Linux server, is there multi-factor authentication? There isn't right now. So we add that. You know, so that's where I'm talking about, like, ramp, like eliminating the ability for attackers to do to have lateral movement, eliminating standing privileges, eliminating admin accounts off of those machines. Just you use your AD credentials. And and by the way, I keep talking about AD. It doesn't matter whether it's in the cloud or on prem, right? Active, you can use other um, identity providers, Okta, whatever. The point is, it's one directory. Everybody, there are no local accounts. And that's how you eliminate, again, standing privileges. And you make it harder for attackers you uh, to propagate. You remove, you know, you significantly reduce, reduce the attack surface. That, that's really interesting. So in the episode, we talked about we talked about this sort of crabbing like behavior of moving sideways and trying to explore the, um, the, the the directories, which is making me think that hackers are like hermit crabs now, but uh, <laughs> uh, as they look for a new home and move sideways. Um, so we, we, I mentioned about the three key takeaways then. Were you not aware of, um, of, of this being as much of an issue with around identity or is this just, you know, it, it's, it's opened up a world for yeah. you? What I did not know is that you can, you know, I kept thinking of restrict lateral movement at the network level, right? Seg network segmentation, but you can segment only so much, right? Before the system, people start revolting because they can't access something. This is prevention of lateral movement at the credential level, right? If you land on my machine and you steal my credentials, you can't move sideways because you need MFA, for example, to go, uh, you know, to to log into servers. When you do find that Active Directory server, when you do find something, you you need 
uh, you're going to be challenged, right? Or you might not even find any admin domain level admin credentials on my machine because there are none, because there only there is only local user. So I keep thinking of analogies, and the way I see it is that the network everybody understands cars. The network level stuff is like having great tires and suspension. You're not going to get far without tires and suspension. Right. And then there is another layer, which is like steering wheel. And, you know, you're also not going to get far, very far. And maybe this was just my ignorance, but I wasn't aware of these uh, of these capabilities of removing the ability to move laterally and re- reducing attack surface, not at the network level, but at the identity or privilege or admin account uh, you know, level. So that's what that's what's blown my mind. And I, you know, I can't wait to learn the products better. And to go back to the network security world and talk to the partners and the MSSPs that with whom I've worked, who focus primarily on network security and tell them, hey, there's a whole another plane of existence that you should be aware of that affects your life, you know, your life as well. That's really interesting. So how long, how long have you been there now? Two months. Two months. It just goes to show you how long ago we recorded the episode. I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, it's it, it's very interesting. But you know, everybody focuses on the same thing. This is not to take away from what we recorded. Everyone focuses on the same thing. The attackers, they get in, whatever methods they, you know, whether it's a vulnerability, zero day, whether it's stolen credentials. Once they get in, they elevate their, they steal credentials, they move laterally, they, you know, establish persistence, exfiltrate the data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, and so we're all still focused on the same problem. I think it's amazing, isn't it? That you know, you've, it, even though there's a lot of similarities between the problems, and everybody's approaching them in the same way, that there's there's always some other area that you know the same still applies, the same loophole that a hacker could exploit, and uh, you know, there's 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 many out there. It doesn't matter how many bases you're covering, I guess. They will continue to get in because. It, uh, at the end of the day, what is hacking? It's one person taking advantage of another person's mistakes. Uh, a, pro, a software engineer makes an assumption. That assumption leads to a vulnerability or an IT admin misconfigures something and that results in the ability to get into the network, right? And, and it's just, I mean, I know I'm talking at like 30,000 feet, but you know, the, the problem will not unfortunately go away. We can make it more and more difficult. And again, I think we discussed an episode about how you know, there are opportunistic attackers versus targeted attacks versus opportunistic attacks. There are those that were destruction in mind versus financial gain. And, uh, you know, then there are nation states. And what you want to focus on is making sure that the opportunistic ones that want to make money, it's super hard for them. Targeted that want to make money, that it's really, really hard for them. If a nation state wants to get in, they'll probably find a way. <laughs> but you, you want to, again, just make it really, really difficult for those who are just looking for a quick buck to get into your systems. All right. Well, I think um, that's a good point to end on. So, again, thank you for joining us for this uh, this catch-up again, Dimitri. It's been very brief, uh, but it's been great to have you back and see you two months after the fact. <laughs> <laughs> It, it was a big switch. Uh, you know, you can imagine spending 18 years in one place and then uh, switching over. But I really appreciate you guys, uh, you know, having me back and uh, allowing me to give this update. Great stuff. Well, thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Well, that was Dimitri twice, would you believe? Yeah, multi-factor authent on the uh, terminal sounds interesting to me, although I do kind of hate MFA. I think it's a bit of a pain. 
but it is important. And I guess if it's correctly implemented to only kick in when there are issues, that could be a game changer for keeping things safe. Well, next week's show is with Laurent Schmidt from Decibel. I'm really looking forward to sharing this one with you folks because it's all about solar power and democratizing of energy democratization of energy rather which is quite an appropriate discussion considering how much energy prices have risen since we have recorded this conversation with laurent so tune in for that one and as usual head over to that tech dot show to check out all 50 plus episodes of the show and give us a five-star review on apple podcasts or podchaser or wherever you can find to review us really and drop us a shekel or a dime on buy me a coffee uh, because this podcast don't pay for itself you know that's all for now thanks for listening and uh see you next week yeah see you next week bye